You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Carly has earned every accolade that a leader of a global business could possibly earn, including um, one that is hard for many leaders of global businesses to learn, and that is she's number one, has been number one on the Fortune uh, Most Powerful Women in Business. And uh, that is also an indicator of another, another thing. There are very, very few Fortune 50 or Fortune 20 companies that have been led at any time by a person of Carly's gender. I think you're the only one, the only one. And you may think this is um, a matter of tokenism, and we're so lucky to have the only uh, woman who's ever led a Fortune 20 company, and that's not the case at all. I've been studying leadership since 1963, and I've had an opportunity to watch many great leaders, including uh, some that uh, are historical figures, and I would count Carly Fiorina as one of the top 10 leaders that I've ever learned about and had the opportunity to watch in action, usually from a distance, but often by finding out from her people what they think of her. And um, there's no better praise than a great, that a great leader can have that, than people who are working in her organizations and in the ecosystems that her organization has benefited than to hear the voices of praise that have come to me from the many, many people who have worked at Hewlett Packard and worked in the parts of the world that Hewlett-Packard, through Carly's leadership, has helped to make um, just better in all sorts of ways. So if you're a global entrepreneur, uh, Carly Fiorina is a leader who you really need to get to know and study and learn more about. If you're from a part of the world that's tired of being on the wrong side of the digital divide, Carly did more for that during her time as a leader than any leader of any American company. And um, I expect she's continuing to do more of that as she continues her career. So she's a fabulous leader, and um, she hasn't paid me a penny to say these things. <laughs> and I got my autographed copy of this book right before, and this is one of the best books that I've ever read, written by a leader, anytime. And those of you who know me know that I'm a bookaholic, and I've got hundreds and hundreds of books on my best books list. This is in the top ten. So think about what we'll learn from Carly today, both by being here and, and telling her story, whatever you want to tell, and by your presence and by answering questions. The same game rules apply as always do, except that we're back in Terman, so what does that mean about what you have to do when you ask your question? What does it mean? Speak up loud. So grab the mic. Everybody practice for just a minute. Pick up the mic, hold it in your hand, and don't all press it once, but what you want to do is just like a jet pilot, you want to get on that walkie-talkie and ask your question of Carly, and then she will repeat the question because no one will be able to understand it because of the technology. And so Carly will help you repeat it if you have troubles with that. But the reason you have to do this is that the online audience needs to understand your question in order to understand her answer. And although I talk much too long, please make your questions short, sweet, <laughs> concise, no ands, ifs, or buts. Not my first, second, and third question are. One question to a customer so that we can get to as many of your questions as we can. With no further ado, Carly, you, you started it off as an undergraduate here at Stanford. We're so glad to have you back. Come on back on stage. Welcome to Carly Fiorina. Thank you. Well, thank you and good afternoon. It's great to be with you here in Herman Auditorium and as well with all of you around 
the world, wherever you are. So I really wouldn't want to talk at you for very long. So maybe I'm going to talk for 20 minutes or so, and then I'd much rather take your questions. It's more interesting for me. It's probably more interesting for you as well. But I would like to uh, set the table, as it were. And I want to begin just by telling you a little bit about myself. Um, it is true that I was an undergraduate here at Stanford. But unlike you, I was not, you know, focused on entrepreneurship and technology and thinking big thoughts about opening a company. And I wasn't in engineering. I studied medieval history and philosophy. Now, um, why, you might ask, did I study medieval history and philosophy? It just seemed interesting to me. I came from a family that had no contact with business. My father was an academic. He was a law professor. He taught for a time here at Stanford Law School. Um, my mother was an artist and a stay-at-home mother. And so growing up, I was one of those, I would say, um, eager to please middle children. Uh, I was afraid most of the time. I most especially wanted to please my parents. And they were very focused on the classic liberal arts education. So I took Latin and English and history. And when I came to Stanford, because I knew I would go to graduate school someday, I just picked a subject that seemed interesting. And almost by accident, I came to a course in medieval history and philosophy and found it fascinating. It was fascinating for two reasons, I think. One is because it was interesting to me, even then, what happens, how does it happen, that people who are enlightened and optimistic and focused on the future lose all of that and go into a period of darkness and fear? And how do they come back out of that again? And that is, in fact, what medieval history is all about. But I also learned something about dealing with overwhelming amounts of information. Now, you know, this was quite a long time ago. Just to date myself, I graduated in 1976. I'm a grandmother, you know, just so you get the picture here. And um, someone asked me, actually, were there women's organizations here at Stanford when I was here? And I said, honestly, I don't know. Um, we didn't think about it that way. But one of the things that I learned in this medieval history course was um, we had to read a work of philosophy every week. Big books. You know, Aquinas, Maimonides. I know none of this thrills you, but suffice it to say they were books of about couple thousand pages apiece. And every week, we had to distill those thousands of pages into a two-page paper. And for me, the process was that I would write 20 pages, and I would get it down to 10 pages, and I would get it down to five, and finally, I would get it down to two, which for me, I hoped represented sort of the distilled essence of what I had learned and what I had read. It turns out that that skill has been very useful as I've been through my life. Because all of us are overwhelmed with amounts of information. And there will come a time in everyone's life, whether it's in a course you're taking 
or whether it's in a choice you have to make about your life or about your work, where what you're going to have to do is cut through lots of information and distinguish the truly important from the merely interesting. After I graduated from Stanford, I was afraid. Afraid of lots of things. Afraid of the choices I needed to make. Afraid of failure. Afraid of what life held in store. So I went off and did what my father wanted me to do. Are you trying to get to your seat, Tom? OK. <laughs> Um, so I go off to law school because that's what my dad wants me to do. And uh, I spend a semester in law school and discover very quickly that I truly hate it. It leaves me cold. And so after a semester, I come home and make the first tough choice of my life, the first adult choice of my life in many ways. I tell my mother and father that I'm going to quit. They were very disappointed. They were worried. And let's face it, I'm now a medieval history and philosophy student. I'm a law school dropout. It's 1976. There was a recession going on. I was completely unemployable. Completely unemployable. So what do I do? And I have to pay the rent. I mean, I got to pay for food and the apartment and everything else. So I go through the want ads. And I find an ad for a secretary. And I answer the ad, and I get the job. And I go to work as a secretary, answering the phone, typing, and filing at a little company called Marcus and Millichap, which is about two miles from here. That was my first introduction to business, was walking in there and being a secretary. About, I don't know, six months into that job, two men came along. and said, you know, we've been watching you, and we think maybe you can do more than answer the phones. Would you like to learn something about what we do? And that was my first introduction to business. But it was also my first introduction to leadership. Because what those two men did was see possibilities. They saw possibilities in me. And because they saw possibilities in me, I all of a sudden saw possibilities that I hadn't known existed before. A leader's job is to see possibilities and to help people seize possibilities. That is the essence of leadership. It is the joy of leadership. It is the contribution of leadership. It turned out I kind of liked the pace of business. I liked the pragmatism of business. And most of all, I liked the people of business. So I kind of get through that job. By the way, I didn't think it was beneath me. I didn't think there was something else I should be doing that was better than that. I was ha happy to have the job. And I felt like I was learning a lot, which taught me something else really important. And it's something I have believed in all my career. Don't think about the next job. Don't think about what might be over there on the horizon that you could or should be doing. Put all your energies into what you're doing right now. And see the possibilities in whatever it is you're doing. Every situation, every job, every circumstance in life has many limitations to it. And every situation has many possibilities. And the people who focus on possibilities are the people who achieve more. 
than the people who focus on limitations. I go to work after I go up. For, I ran off to Italy and taught English for a year. You know, finally I go off and get my MBA, and I join what was then called the Bell System, one million employees. And I join in Washington, D.C. as an account executive. And my first meeting with a client is in a strip club. <laughs> when I became a manager for the first time, my boss introduced me as, this is Carly, she's our token bimbo. Interestingly, when I was the CEO of Hewlett-Packard, you might remember it was a rather controversial time at Hewlett-Packard. Uh, you know, I arrived at Hewlett-Packard at the height of the dot-com boom, and I was at Hewlett-Packard during the dot-com bust, the worst technology recession in 25 years, September 11th, Enron, Tyco, WorldCom, two-and-a-half-year bear market, a global economic slowdown, and oh yeah, by the way, there was that little merger with Compaq, <laughs> which was intensely controversial. And during that time in the chat rooms around the valley, you could fairly often see me referred to as either a bimbo, no substance, or that other B word. I also, uh, I was chatting with some folks ahead of this class, and uh, I said, you know, when I went to Stanford, the joke was that, um, well, nine out of 10 California women are good looking, and the 10th the goes to Stanford. <laughs> and a couple young women said, oh, they still have that joke. <laughs> and that, you know, belies the prejudice that somehow women can't be attractive and substantive at the same time. I have to comment just for a moment on the fortune, most powerful women in business. You know, I was the number one most powerful woman in business for six years. And for six years, I told Fortune magazine, don't number women one to 50. If you want to celebrate diversity in business, great. Highlight successful women. But when you number us one to 50, the message you're sending is that business is like tennis. There's a men's ladder and a women's ladder. And the women have to compete against each other because we're not good enough to play against the men. That's not what it's about in business. And it's not what it's about in the 21st century. This is a century in which diversity, leveraging diversity and collaborating is what it's all about. And so let me get to that. But I say all that to tell you that long story, to say that I have seen a lot of change. I have personally been through a lot of change. Whether it was moving around as a young child, I went to five high schools in four years, not easy. Or whether it was going from a medieval history student to a law school dropout to a secretary. Or whether it was going from a, you know, account executive to doing the initial public offering of Lucent Technologies, which at the time was the largest in history. Or whether it was doing the largest technology merger in history and going through a proxy battle that today is still legendary. Or, frankly, whether it was getting fired by a dysfunctional board of directors in a political uh, situation. You can read all about that in the book. But suffice it to say that those three folks have all been fired from the board since then. I've been through a lot of change. And so I want to talk to you briefly before I t take your questions about what I've learned about change 
what I've learned about people and what I've learned about leadership. Because I think those are all things that will matter to you in your life. So what do I know about change? First thing I know is that everybody is afraid of something. Everybody is afraid of something. All of you are afraid of something. All of us are afraid of something. What distinguishes people who are successful in their life from those who are not is what do you do with your fear? Some people are held back by their fears, and some people choose to move ahead in spite of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting in spite of fear. But because everybody is afraid, what most of the time people are afraid of is something new. The essence of entrepreneurship is risk-taking. The essence of business is risk-taking. Taking a risk is all about trying something new. And yet, as people go on in their lives, they become afraid of trying something new. And so change is always resisted, always, because people are afraid. Even if what they have is not satisfying to them, a lot of people are afraid to venture into the unknown. And that holds them back from change. And if you are trying to drive a company, an organization, your colleagues towards change, you have to know that they are afraid. And you have to know as well that the only way you can help people get over their fear is to give them a vision of something that's worth striving for, that's worth taking a risk for. But the other reason change is always resisted is because the natural momentum, the natural instinct of any institution, any institution, I don't care if that institution is a family, a board, a university, a company of five people or 500,000 people. Today, one of the many very interesting things that I do is I chair the advisory board for the Central Intelligence Agency. And so I can say without fear of contradiction that this is true of government or agencies, everybody. The natural momentum of any organization is to preserve the status quo. Why? Because people who have positions of power and influence want to keep them. And so they invest their energies in maintaining their position of power and influence. This isn't because people are bad. It's just human nature. And so again, if you are focused on risk-taking, change, you have to understand that the momentum that works against you is the power of the status quo. And it's always there. That's why change is hard. And the other force that pushes against change is fear, basic human fear. And so change has to have enough power, the power of the vision about what can be different. It has to have enough force and enough energy to overcome people's fears and to overcome the power of the status quo. I've seen over time what happens to people is they get discouraged because perhaps they didn't realize that change is always resisted. I spoke to a group of people in Washington, D.C. recently, and these were, I can say this because this isn't Harvard, it's Stanford. This was a group of Harvard-educated people. <laughs> and um, they were about 
my age. And it was interesting to me because all of them were talking about how powerless they felt to change things. Now, these are people who had everything. They had education. They had position in life. They were living in one of the most important cities of the world, and yet they felt like they couldn't change something. Later, maybe two weeks later, I went to visit some of our wounded soldiers in Walter Reed Hospital. And I met a young man who had come back from Iraq. He had lost both his legs, and he was blind. He was 20 years old. And yet, this young man had such focus, such energy, and he decided that what he was going to do was help change other people's lives for the better because he was going to help them deal with the wounds that they experienced because he said, I can help them. I understand what this is like. So here is a kid who was powerless in every traditional sense of the word and yet who understood that he had power to do good. He could change something for someone. Which brings me to leadership, because leadership is all about changing the order of things. Leadership is all about making a positive difference. And just as is clear from the difference between those two stories I just told, the Harvard-educated people and this soldier, Leadership is a choice. Leadership is a choice to make a positive difference. And anybody, anybody can choose to lead. This is, in fact, what got me interested in technology. I know that seems like a big leap. But I got interested in technology because technology is a tool that unlocks human potential. Technology is a tool that can give people an opportunity who've never had an opportunity before. Technology is a tool that can help people collaborate more effectively. Technology is a tool that over time begins to erase barriers, the traditional barriers of time, distance, access, wealth. In the 21st century, for the first time, and remember, I was a history student, this is the first century in the history of humankind where we actually can do anything we choose. Anything. Think about it. I mean, we can travel into space and see the rings around Saturn. We can go to the depths of the ocean and discover life forms we never knew existed. We can destroy the planet. We can save the planet. We can, we do today, produce enough food to feed everybody in the world. We can choose to let people starve. We can do anything we choose. And you are the first generation that's coming of age in this century in which we can do anything we choose. And so you must choose whether to be a leader or not. I have met leaders like that young man, but also in my experience in corporate America, I have met leaders with no position, no title, no power in the traditional sense. 
who choose to make a difference. And then I have met people of great wealth, great position, great title, who do not lead at all. And there is a difference between management and leadership. Management is the production of acceptable results within known constraints and conditions. Very important. But management is not leadership. Leadership is all about changing the order of things. You know, speaking of medieval history, um, he wasn't exactly medieval. He was more Renaissance. But Machiavelli said something very interesting about change. Machiavelli said, there is nothing so difficult or so dangerous as to undertake to change the order of things. And that is true. It is difficult, and it is sometimes dangerous, because people resist, and people are afraid. And that is why only leaders can drive change. So what's leadership about? I think leadership is about three things. Capability, collaboration, and character. Let me talk briefly about those three, and then I'm going to take your questions. Capability. Of course, we think about capability, we think about skills, we think about experiences. All of those things are important. But sometimes the most important capability you can have is the capability to ask a question and hear the answer. Every time you go into a new situation, you have to ask questions to understand what's there. I tell people all the time that the single best leading indicator of whether a business is doing well or a business is doing poorly is customer satisfaction. Customers always know what's wrong. They can't always tell you what they want, but they can always tell you what's wrong. And every time they tell you something that's wrong, it's an opportunity. So I think you know, uh, income statements and balance sheets are lagging indicators, very important. But an income statement or a balance sheet is a representation of decisions already made. Somebody's bought a product, that's revenue you post. A manager's made a decision, that's an expense you post. Lagging indicator. Real important, but you're looking in the rearview mirror. They're things that tell you where a business is going. Asking the right questions of customers turns out to be really important. Customer sat is a vital leading indicator for business. And if you doubt me, way back in 2002, you know, we were going through the proxy battle and the merger, and I made the incredibly outrageous comment that Hewlett-Packard would become the leading technology company in the world and would beat both IBM and Dell. Everyone thought I was nuts. By the way, it has since happened. But what was interesting, people said, how do you know you can beat Dell? I said, well, because we can replicate their cost structure, we can replicate their distribution model, and because, if you observe, our customer set is going up and theirs is going down. The truth is Dell's problems were all foreseeable. All you had to do was look at the fact that they had quit innovating, they had stopped taking risks, they were relying on the same competitive model for too long, and their customer sat was straight down. It was only a matter of time, which is why rate of innovation, the ability to take risks, the ability to celebrate new ideas, is also a leading indicator of a business. So capability, you've got to ask the right questions. Capability, you have to celebrate new ideas, take risks all the time, try new things. 
Because however good the answers you have had are, every person, every organization eventually reaches a time when the old answers aren't good enough anymore. And then the only thing that works is creativity and new ideas and risk-taking and innovation. The other important part about capability, I think, is to keep learning, to learn something every day. If you, I'm older than most of you, so I can say this with some certainty, but you know, you see people who are in their 40s and 50s, and some people at that age are 60s or 70s or 80s, and some people in that age group are vibrant, and some people aren't. And a big part of that difference is the people who keep learning, who keep trying new things, are vibrant. And the people who stop learning and stop trying new things are old before their time. It is why, or maybe it's another application of something Charles Darwin said. Charles Darwin said, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but those most adaptive to change. It's true of species. It's true of organizations. It's true of people. Those most adaptive to change. So you can't ever settle in. As afraid as people are of taking risks, when they stop doing it, they settle in. They get old before their time. Capability. Collaboration. One of the things that I know is that good decisions are a result of diverse people coming together, examining every point of view in a deliberate, rigorous process, and then making a decision. We know what happens when groupthink occurs. I mean, pick your example of groupthink. Groupthink is when people who kind of are all alike get together and say, yeah, yeah, that's what we ought to do. Now, here's the thing. Groupthink usually happens. It usually happens because it's human nature that all of us, each of us, surround ourselves with people like us. It's comfortable. It's easier. If you're with people like you, you know, you finish each other's sentences. You really understand everything the other person is saying. You can relate to one another. The only trouble is when all you do is surround yourself with people like you, you're going to miss something really important one of these days. And so the goal is always to build a diverse group of people. Always. Because you make better decisions that way. It's harder. It's much harder. It is much harder to pull together a diverse group of people who really do have different points of view, different experiences, different knowledge base, and yes, different race, different gender, different religion, to pull people like that together and consider an opportunity or a problem. It's harder, but you do get better answers, which is why Collaboration is such an incredibly important part of leadership. In the 21st century now, because we live in a global economy, because of the power of technology, anybody can play. Anybody can play. 
but, and lots of people around the world want to play, but all of that human potential to solve problems, to create wealth, all of that human potential won't be worthwhile if we can't leverage and tap all of the diversity that that human potential represents. And that's very difficult for people. And so learning how to collaborate effectively with people who are different than you, who have a different point of view, in some cases a radically different point of view, is a really important leadership skill. And finally, character. I think character is about judgment, perspective, and ethics. Judgment. Remember I talked to you about um, all that overwhelming information and technology? There's loads of information out there. And all of the technology tools we have and all of the information we have encourages us to speed everything up and to think that, you know, it's, you know, kind of let's skim on the surface, get some quick data and information, and then let's move. Judgment is necessary to cause someone to say, you know what, should I act or should I pause? Do I really have all the information or do I need more? This is also a time when fact, fiction, opinion, informed or not, all competes with the same legitimacy out there. This is an era that I think requires more judgment than in any other time. There are no filters anymore about what's legitimate information and what's not. The wonderful power of this technology that allows me to be able to speak to thousands of people also is a torrent of unfiltered information, some of which is very worthwhile and some is downright dangerous. And so the judgment to understand the difference is critical. You will have a huge challenge in making judgments about what's legitimate and what's not, what's important and what's not, when to act and when to pause, who is authentic and who is not. Perspective. The perspective to understand the difference between the, as I said earlier, the merely interesting or the truly important. The perspective to know that actually not everybody is like you. It really is different elsewhere, those differences really do make a difference. And maybe we need to understand those differences. That takes perspective. It is one of the reasons why I actually encourage people, believe it or not, it's not just because I did it. I encourage people to read history, philosophy, understand music, art, study other cultures, travel the world. All of that gives you perspective about what's out there. And finally, ethics. Here's the truth. In most organizations, in most endeavors, if you do things that are kind of on the line and on the edge, you can get better results in the short term. It's why a lot of businesses tolerate behavior that's on the edge, because it sometimes produces better results in the short term. Values are what guide your behavior when no one's looking and you don't think anyone's going to find out. 
I believe a leader's most important job is to make sure that everybody understands that actually values matter and ethics count. And you know what? We're not going to do stuff on the edge. Because what happens when people do things on the edge is eventually they walk over the line. And when they walk over the line, devastating things happen. Because in this era of always-on communication and information, you can't hide anything anymore. And people are going to find out. So you can't get close to the edge. You have to really stay true to a set of ethics and values. And yes, there is some variation on ethics and values around the world, but most of the time, people understand what's on the edge and what's not. So I'm going to stop here. But let me just say, everyone's afraid. Change makes people afraid. But what you're studying is all about change. Because everyone is afraid, people resist change, even when it's positive, and that is why only leaders can drive change. But if leaders drive change, collaboration powers change. It's only when people collaborate, really effectively collaborate, that they come to the best outcomes and the best answers. And in the end, while I think it's vitally important how people build their capabilities, and while your Stanford degree is a wonderful asset, I think very candidly, speaking as a Stanford graduate, what will distinguish your life and your leadership as you go forward is less your capability and more your collaboration skills and your character and what you choose to do. Okay. Questions? I'm using Google today. And uh, it was the best company to work for in Spain and almost one of the best companies to work in the United States in the Fortune. So that happened for two years. It came down to a company where um, most of the Medicare people stayed and most of the brilliant people that I am aware of left. And, uh, most of the I what people left, I'm sorry? Uh, the brilliant people. And I think that mm -hmm. I don't have to worry how to convince you that uh, I'm not one of those people who are afraid of change. I'm not one of those people who are not bright. Is, is there a question in here yeah, somewhere? Forget it's coming to question. The question is why? I mean, I don't think that the only destiny of HP was to become a dinosaur like IBM. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so why do you think, I mean, the question yeah. is why makes you think that the only possible destiny for HP was to convince it to be a medical technology company in the future? That's the. Okay. So, first, let me just say that I think um, obviously you have a point of view. And your point of view is legitimate. But I think you are being, with all due respect, incredibly insulting to the people of HP when you say all the brilliant people left. HP is a company of 165,000 people. And let me assure you, that there were brilliant people before you arrived, and there were brilliant people after you left. Now, let me say one other thing. When I arrived at HP, this was a company that had a storied history, without a doubt. And I have great admiration and respect for the history of this company. But it was also a company in 1999, in the middle of the biggest technology upturn in history, had missed nine quarters in a row. While it missed nine quarters in a row, 
its profit was deteriorating, its growth was slowing, and its employees were getting record bonuses. They were getting record bonuses because the way performance was measured was as performance against internal plan. Well, you know what? People know how to play that game. So what did people do? They set their plans really low, and they achieved them, and they got bonuses. The only trouble was nothing about the performance of the company was competitive. We were no longer among the top 25 innovators in the world. When I asked whether we innovated, it was one of our core values. People said, well, yes, it's a core value. And I said, well, how do we know? How many patents did we produce? How many new products do we put into the revenue stream every year? No one could answer the question. It wasn't that they were bad. It was that this was a company that came to rely upon its history. No company, particularly a technology company, no company can rest on its laurels. No company can stop innovating. No company can say, you know what, we've done it all. So I was brought to HP because people who loved and knew that company said, you know what, this used to be a leader. This company is now a laggard. We need to become a leader again. The thing is, when you decide you're going to become a leader, you have to understand what's changing in the world. The 21st century is totally different than the 20th. But one of the big differences is when HP was at its height in the late 80s and the early 90s, it was all about products. So we had 87 standalone business units all doing their own thing. It had worked well for a really long time. But imagine. 87 IT systems, 87 HR departments, 87 customer care systems. In the 21st century, which is about network solutions, it wasn't going to work. So we had to understand that we had to innovate again. We had to aspire to leadership. I won't make my answer too much longer, although it was a very long and loaded question. But what I will say is this. The choice to lead is everything. Hewlett-Packard made a choice that we wanted to lead again. And to lead again, we had to do what was necessary. And to do what was necessary was to say, we need to innovate again. So we started measuring it. We went from not even being in the top 25 innovators in the world to being number three in the world by 2005. We were generating 11 patents a day in 2003 and 2004. That matters. We had scope. We had scale. We had the cost structure to compete. Was there another destiny for HP? Of course. HP could have lagged. But HP chose instead to lead. OK, gentleman in the back. Okay, so I think the question was, what can business people do to deal with some of the you know, global societal issues, terrorism, uh, religious intolerance? Was that your question? Yeah. Okay. So I happen to believe um, very strongly that because business can make a positive difference, it should make a positive difference. If you look at the top 100 GDPs, gross domestic products in the world today, 52 of them are companies. So companies have huge power. I'm speaking now, of course, of large companies. 
But all we have to do is think about the inventions that have come out of this university to realize that business changes the world whether it's in terms of the numbers of communities in which it participates or whether it's in terms of the technology that it develops. I happen to believe that a CEO's job is to balance the requirements of four constituents. Customers, because only customers can buy a product, only customers can grow a company, only customers produce revenue. Cost-cutting may produce profits, only customers produce revenue, only revenue can drive a company. Employees, because it is people who produce value. Business is about profit, business is about products, people produce both. Communities, because a community can tolerate a company, it can support a company, or it can fight a company. You've seen the headlines about Walmart in New York. Here's an example of where a community said no. And finally, and I say finally, investors. Investors are an important constituent, but they're only one. Now, why do I say that? Because I think it is in businesses' enlightened self-interest to be a positive participant in society and in communities, whether it's big or small. And I think business can do that in a couple ways. First, business can do it by providing technology and money. Perhaps more fundamentally, business can do that by providing people, their know-how, their skills. When we first created our uh, worldy inclusion programs when I was at HP, what we found was that our people's management time and management skills were more important to communities than the money or the products we could give them. Because it turns out, I do a lot of work today with not-for-profits. I do a lot of work with government organizations. I'm going to be traveling to the Middle East in another 10 days. It turns out that the business disciplines of setting goals, prioritizing effort, measuring progress, all of those things actually make a difference in solving real problems. Um, and I guess the final thing that I would say is I think business can, in many ways, um, show the way in terms of using diversity to produce positive results. The, just as an example, Hewlett-Packard was a microcosm of the world. We had people of all kinds. We operated in 178 countries. We had people who agreed with where we were going, and we had people like the gentleman up front who disagreed with where we were going. It was a little microcosm of the world. And so when we as a company could leverage the diversity of that workforce and solve real problems, it helps. Finally, I guess I would say um, technology makes a huge difference. Because when people, just like this, when people are brought together to share a common experience. It helps bridge gaps and build understanding. And I will tell you for sure, having worked with the CIA for a while now, um, the only way to combat terrorism is effective collaboration. <laughs> yes? 
same time you were there, and uh, I thought the cases were just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. They weren't perfect. Perfection is not the goal, but they were positive. <laughs> So the question was, after the gentleman said he thought the changes I made were positive, just for the record. <laughs> see, now you get it. Right there, you see what happens with change. But the real part of the question was, he has two choices. One is to go into the corporate world. Another is to pursue entrepreneurship. How should he think about making that choice? Um, the way I've approached choices in my life is um, to very realistically lay out all the pluses and minuses of both choice, to the extent that you know them. What are the pluses and minuses of each? And when you're all done with that, search your heart. Search your heart. Decide what it is you can really be passionate about. Because success takes passion. First of all, life isn't much fun without it. But second of all, whatever you choose to do, you will have to give so much to it that you better be passionate about it. And the third thing that I would say is, you know, life is not one choice and done. That's why I told you my own story at the outset. I mean, my goodness, I was a medieval history student and a secretary. It, life isn't about coming up with the perfect plan. And if you don't follow it A to Z and you make the wrong move, that's it. It's not how life is. So you know what? Do the pros and cons. Search your heart. But if you make a choice and a year from now you decide it was the wrong one, okay. Change. Change course and do something different. It won't be the end of the world. Uh, let me keep going back to that. Yes, sir, right there. Thank you, Tom. Hi. Um, you talked about the importance of keeping a diverse group around you and, you know, bringing any type of institution to avoid, you know, group and in the, the life of that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about where that fits into the lifetime of a company. So, you know, for example, if I'm trying to start a company, is it more important for me to um, have a group of like-minded people who kind of work together on the same page, or is it more important for me to have that outset, um, you know, have that diversity of thought? No. Um, well, I think the short answer, sorry, the question was, when you're starting out to build your own company, is it more important to have like-minded people around you, or is it more important to have that diversity of thought? And I think, you know, the honest answer is both. So, meaning, I think um, you need people around you at all times in your life, but particularly uh, if you're starting your own company, who share your goals and share your passion for whatever it is you're doing. You, you have to have people around you who can pick you up 
when you have a bad day because they really get how important that is to you. But on the other hand, you also have to have people who are going to be able to say to you, you know what, I think you're missing this. I think you're missing this. One of the things that I think happens a lot with technologists, if you don't mind my saying so, I've worked with technologists most of my life, my professional life. And I think what happens with technologists is they fall in love with the technology. And that's wonderful. But when they fall in love with technology, sometimes they forget that it's people who are actually going to use the technology. And there are things about those people that they need to understand. How to communicate with them, how maybe to make the product a little less sexy but a little more usable. Um, those are the kinds of differences in points of view that I think are important. So for sure, I would, you ought to think about someone who's going to be, assuming you're focused on some kind of technology, you ought to have somebody who's going to talk to you about the customers of that product, not just the technology. Yes? Yes, I have. She's talking about Faust by Goethe, and it's a, a wonderful book. Yeah. So the question was, uh, referencing Faust by Goethe, is, um, is it true that change is always accompanied by destruction? Uh, and is it true, you didn't put it quite this way, but is it true that change agents or change warriors are sometimes part of the fallout? And I think the answer is undeniably yes. This is why Machiavelli said there is nothing so difficult or so dangerous as to undertake to change the order of things. Because any time progress occurs, something is left behind. Not everything has to be left behind. Um, just as an example of this, um, when we completed the merger with Compaq, we went through a process called cultural due diligence. So you know, when you do a merger, you have financial due diligence, you have technical due diligence, we created a process called cultural due diligence. And what we were trying to do was understand how to leverage the diversity of these two companies. The goal was not for HP to take over Compaq. The goal was to take the DNA of these two companies and make a stronger company as a result. We interviewed thousands of employees all over the world, and we asked two very basic questions. Question one, what do you want the values of the new company to be? Question two, What's it like to work around here? The answer to question one was interesting because everybody said the same things, which is to say that human beings really do aspire to the same things. Everybody wanted the values of the company to include innovation and respect and passion for customers and teamwork and contribution. And in fact, when we were all done with that study, we had the same set of values 
that have been at the center of Hewlett-Packard for 60 years, with one addition, speed and agility, which is important if you're a technology company in the 21st century. The answer to the other question was revealing as well, because there were real differences between these two cultures. HP tended to be very process intensive, very thorough, very systematic. That's really good when you have a complex problem. But HP people also tended to process for too long. They processed and processed and processed, and they wouldn't decide. And the time would pass them by. Compact people tended to be much faster and more decisive. But sometimes they had to do the decision over and over again because they hadn't been thoughtful and they hadn't understood all they needed to understand. The goal was fast, thorough decision-making. And we were explicit about that goal. And it's how we accomplished an integration, not in two and a half years as we had originally committed, but in 18 months. And not two and a half billion of savings, but three and a half billion of savings. So my point is this. It's an illustration of, yes, of course. That's why people are afraid of change. Something has to change which means something has to be left behind. And yet, there is no progress in life unless you go forward. And sometimes the change warrior, and that's what it takes to push against the power of the status quo, sometimes the change warrior gets carried out on their shield. That's why Machiavelli said what he said. Yes, sir? What do you want to do with the rest of your career and why? Um. <laughs> so let me tell you what I'm doing now. First, I, I am not a person who um, um, sits and waits for things to happen. So I've made some important choices. Um, one of the choices that I made was that I wanted a period to refresh and learn new things. And that meant that I didn't jump right back into another CEO job, although I had that opportunity. Um, I also wanted an opportunity to give back. So that meant that I was going to give both time and money to causes that are important to me. So my life today has a lot of variety to it. I serve on um, a large variety of kinds of boards. I serve on three technology company boards. Um, I do work with government agencies where I am um, advising them on some of the important changes they need to make to deal with some of the problems of the 21st century. The CIA is one, the State Department is another. I spend a lot of time with um, nonprofit organizations that are focused on things that are important to me. So, for example, I am a founding member of something called the African Leadership Academy, where we are identifying young leaders all throughout Africa and bringing them together to try and support and nurture their leadership capability. Um, I work with an organization called Vital Voices, which is all about empowering women in communities around the world because the data is crystal clear. If you want to solve any of the 21st century problems, conflict resolution, disease prevention, poverty, education, women have to play a bigger role. If women don't play a large role in their community, those problems don't get solved. So women leaders are a big part of the solution. Uh, I work with an organization called Initiative for Global Development, which is focused on bringing businesses to the table to try and help 
contribute to some of the very important problems that we have today. And one of our issues that we're working on right now is how do we actually get, finally, policymakers in the United States to change farm subsidies in this country because they are not only skewing the markets in our own country, but they're making it extremely difficult, almost impossible, for developing nations to compete in the global trade system. Uh, so I have a life full of interesting things. I hope I'm making a positive difference. I know I'm learning every day. And one day, something may come along that's so compelling, I want to give all that up, but it hasn't yet. Yes? Uh, you mentioned about ethics in the architecture. Um, how do you put ethics in place within the organization? For example, if you're going to put your profit revenues, you just change the incentives, I don't mind, but ethics is, is quite intangible. It's not true. Yeah. So the question is how do you deal with ethics in an organization? Because it's intangible, you, it's not profit, it's not products. And it's a really important question. So the thing that I would say about values of any kind, but particularly the values of integrity, respect, trust, things that are very core to human beings, but very insubstantial <laughs> in terms of an income statement or balance sheet, is you got to walk the walk. Nobody cares about the talk. You can put 100 value statements on the wall. It doesn't matter. And there are two things that people watch for when, when they see if you're walking the walk. The first thing people watch for is who gets promoted? Who gets promoted? The truth is everybody knows in an organization who, is, who has a lot of integrity and who doesn't. People know who's kind of walking on the edge to produce the results. And if those are the people that get promoted, then people get the message. One of the hardest things I ever had to do in my career was fire somebody. He fired a particular person. He had incredible potential. He was incredibly smart. He got great results. But he was doing things that we would fire an employee for. He was an executive. He reported to me. He was doing things we would fire an employee for. He was not truthful. He was abusing the resources of the company. Now, people said to me, you know what? You don't have to fire him. But I did. Because had he stayed, by the way, everybody knew what he was doing. Had he stayed, everyone would have gotten the message. In the press, I was blamed for his departure. You know, she's such a terrible person he couldn't work for. It's okay. It's not about getting credit on the outside. But people on the inside knew what that meant. So who gets promoted? The second thing is you have to be upfront with people that this is what you expect. You have to tell them that. And so if you're going to go through performance evaluations, that has to be part of the performance evaluation. It can't just be the numbers. If values are going to matter, if you, for example, believe that collaboration is an important skill, then you have to coach, develop, people on the basis of their collaboration skills. You have to measure their performance based on their ability to collaborate. So how do you measure performance? What kind of coaching and development do you give people? Who gets promoted? Those are all the things that matter. Now let me just say one thing about ethics because we're in the valley. I personally worry 
about the whole backdating of stock options thing. I know there are a lot of people who think, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? But this valley, which is the, you know, the center of innovation for so much of the world, a place where people look for leadership, for example. Silicon Valley went to Washington, D.C. several years ago and said, with great energy and passion, don't make us expense stock options because they're not compensation. They're only an incentive. And then it turns out, actually, they're so important to compensation that we're going to make the numbers look the way we want them to look. It may have been legal. In my judgment, it's not ethical. And I worry when we have so many companies doing it. That, to me, is pretty broad spread activity that's kind of on the edge. What does that say about the culture of this valley? Does it say that getting rich is more important than doing what's right? That's not a good sign. When people start to think that ethics don't matter as much as other things, the effect over time is corrosive, in my opinion. Yes, sir, way in the back. Hi. Thank you, Ms. Boyd, which is more important than uh, ethics or, or money. Why? It might seem a, a straightforward question. Why do we see leaders going from for profit organizations to non profit organizations, but never see it going the other way around? Yeah. Um, so the question is, why do we see leaders go from for-profit to not-for-profit, but we don't see people going the other way around? Well, I think it's because um, the skill sets are harder to transfer. And this probably will be the last question, because I'm over my time here, and I see people are leaving for their next class. But the skills are not always transferable. The truth is that the skills that you learn in business at their most fundamental, setting goals, measuring progress and results, having a plan for delivering results. Those are skills that are very important and transferable to not-for-profits. In my experience with not-for-profits, what you have is a huge opportunity to improve the professionalism of a lot of not-for-profits. You have wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people doing incredible work, heroic work. But they're not necessarily focused on leveraging that work by making it more efficient or effective. And so I think it's hard, not impossible, to go the other way. OK, uh, yes, the lady right there, and you're going to get the last question. So make it a really good one. Um, you mentioned that you didn't like the impression that you were given that top female leaders could do anything different from their male counterparts. But it's hard to say that women, or it must be said that women do face different challenges in, in business and high tech. Um, and I was just wondering what it was like to be a woman um, in a variety of senior leadership positions in a high tech company. Yeah. So um, the question is, you know, you say women and men shouldn't be judged differently, but clearly they are. What's it like? So you're right. Of course you're right. Clearly, they are. Um, today, in 2007, 16% of the senior executives in corporate America are women. 14% are minorities. 
and that applies to the boardroom as well, and it hasn't changed in two years. It is no longer about inadequately prepared women or minority candidates. It's not what it's about. Now it's about the fundamentals of prejudice and the difficulty of change. People fear someone who's different than they are more than they fear someone who's like them. That's human nature, unfortunately. And so, yeah, it's different for women. Women, anyone who's different, anyone who's different, is perceived differently, characterized differently, caricatured differently. And in some cases, if someone's different, we end up focusing on the superficialities. If someone's different than us, and this is human nature, it's true the world over. If someone's different, we end up looking at all the externalities. Well, it's a different gender, or the color of their skin is different, or the clothes they wear are different, or you know, the kind of building they go to to worship is different. Those are all superficialities. And it's very hard for people to get past that to the substance. And that applies in corporate America today to women and people of color. That's just a fact. And yet, that is why I said I really believe, and I don't say this because I'm a woman. I say this because I have led teams. Diversity is not a matter of fairness or equal opportunity anymore. Diversity is not a nice to do. Diversity now is about winning. If we want to win, if we want to really produce, then we have to leverage the diversity of talent we have. How many people have been to China? Okay, good. First time I went to China, not the first, maybe the second time, I went to speak at Tsinghua University, where all of the communist leadership has been educated. I got wonderful questions that would have been asked in any classroom anywhere in America. Every question was asked in perfect English. I think we have lots of opportunities to collaborate with many countries, including China, around the world. And it is true that this is a global marketplace in which we have to compete. And I bring that up to say the following. We don't have the luxury of bias anymore. If we want to win, if we want to solve these problems, if we want to actually do everything we can, then we have to tap all the brain power there is. And the bias to say, you know what? You look different. I'm not using your talent. You're not the same as me. I'm not using your talent. That's a luxury. And we can't afford it anymore. So yes, it's different. The companies, the countries, the entrepreneurs who don't figure out how to tap the diversity of talent that's out there won't win. The people who figure out how to tap the most brain power, unlock the most potential, those are the people that are going to win. So we can choose to use every bit of brain power and human potential we have. God knows we need it. Or we can choose not to. And technology now truly puts that choice in our hands. Thank you very much. I have enjoyed it.